Uh, welcome to this episode of the Better and Goods podcast. I'm talking to a very, very special guest, Alex Tablock. Alex is uh, the Bartley J. Madden Chair in Economics at the Mercatus Center and a p- professor of economics at George Mason University. He's also one of the people probably most responsible for teaching me the basics of economics with his YouTube channel, Marginal Revolution University. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming on, on the show. Hi, it's great to be here. Um, you've been a critic of the FDA, uh, especially the, the extremely slow responses to approving tests and vaccines. But if you look at the public response to it, um, I think that the public isn't very concerned about it. So one hypothesis might be that, that the public wants the slow FDA because they don't quite trust the the company. They don't try quite trust pharmaceutical companies. Uh, how do you solve a system where the public wants the inefficient outcome? Yeah, it's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, it's been very uh, disconcerting to me, uh, the difference that the uh, public has and the fact that the public hasn't got that and hasn't gotten that angry, despite the fact that in the United States, you know, we have uh, 750,000 deaths. Uh, and you just think about compare with 9-11. So with 9-11, you know, 3,000 deaths, the public was outraged. They were angry. Uh, Within uh, weeks, we had troops in Afghanistan. Uh, You know, by uh, November of that year, we had uh, taken uh, most of the country. By December, we had taken Kabul, you know, and we've spent trillions uh, fighting, you know, the so-called war on uh, terror, you know, for better or worse. And yet, with the virus when we had essentially bombs, you know, raining down on American cities every single day, killing thousands of people uh, for months and months and months on end. And yet the public has just has, they've been complacent uh, for the most part. They've well, this is nature, there's not much we can do about it. You know, they haven't really gotten angry. Trump almost got reelected. Um, and Biden, you know, still has not appointed an FDA commissioner, right? I mean, this is insane. Uh, you know, Biden has taken his time, still has not got uh, a lot of rapid antigen uh, tests approved, uh, still has not made big pushes on, you know, nasal vaccines or things of that nature. So, yeah, I, I agree with you that the public is not outraged at the FDA. They should be. Uh, the public is not outraged at the CDC. Um, they should be. I do think people are learning uh, over time. Uh, they're more aware than they used to be, but what to do about this problem? <laughs> I don't have a solution. I've been blogging publicly about for many years about issues like this. What's your theory of change in the uh, in the marketplace of ideas? Is it that if you write enough blog posts, like it gets popular enough? How do public intellectuals like yourself um, decide to present their their ideas in a way that maximizes policy impact? Right. So I think basically you have to be ready uh, when the crisis uh, happens. Um, and for many years, as you say, I've been saying that the FDA is too slow, uh, too risk averse, too cautious. And, you know, I've said that when the FDA or a, you know, drug approval agency in another country, but let's focus on the FDA, when the FDA uh, approves a bad drug, People learn about that very quickly. The drug, you know, kills some people, has side effects or something like that. People learn about it. And then the FDA gets in trouble because they made a mistake, right? And everyone knows they made a mistake in their congressional hearings and heads will, will roll and so forth. 
But when the FDA uh, fails to make a good decision, when they delay a good drug, or when they make it so expensive that a good drug is never developed, it's too expensive to even bother developing, then the people who uh, die who would have lived had that drug been available, they're buried in an invisible graveyard. They're much harder to see. Now, the thing about this crisis, to get to your question now, is that I do think more people are becoming aware of the invisible graveyard. Now, I said that, you know, the public at large is not uh, angry. Um, that much is true. But it's also true that my ideas about FDA delay and the cost of FDA, FDA delay have received a much, much, much more favorable hearing than in the you know, 25 years that I've been pushing uh, these ideas. So you know, I, there was a very nice piece by Ezra Klein in the New York Times, uh, sort of lauding some of my work or at least not <laughs> denouncing it, um, which was the usual situation. And indeed there have been multiple pieces in the New York Times uh, attacking the FDA, saying the FDA is moving too slowly. Um, incredibly, the American Academy of Pediatrics said the FDA is moving too slowly on child vaccines. Now that is completely unheard of, you know, for a major medical organization to take a stand, a public stand saying that the FDA is going too slow, that the FDA is too risk averse. That has never to my knowledge ever happened uh, before. Um, so I do think there has been some changes and to put it in a nutshell, yeah, that's my theory of social change is that you develop these ideas. And then when the crisis happens, people turn to you. Um, and that's what I think has happened to some extent. Um, that, I think that's, that fits with my model as well. To shift a little, um, China, Hong Kong, and previously Australia had zero COVID policies. They said they weren't going to tolerate it. Do you think such things are sustainable? And if not, what's the right policy intervention on these? Yeah, so those countries did very well um, in the beginning of the uh, pandemic, and they're to be congratulated for that. You know, Australia and New Zealand uh, in particular managed to keep COVID out and keep their economies uh, going. Um, I think where they began to fail a little bit is in not vaccinating quickly enough and not putting enough resources uh, into vaccines. You know, Australia, to give one example, said... Uh, well, we'll make our own vaccine. And then that turned out to fail and said, well, we'll try and save some money and wait for, you know, the Pfizer vaccine and we'll bargain with them and, you know, try and cut down the price. And all of that was insane. <laughs> it was crazy. Um, the Canadians did much better. It says, even though they didn't have their own vaccine capacity, they went out and they bought, you know, a dozen vaccines. Um, and that's what Australia should have done. So Australia should have put much more effort into the vaccination stage. However, um, they have begun to catch up. So they're doing very well uh, right now. Once you've vaccinated, then my view is you really have to get back to normal, even when things are not entirely normal um, because there's not much else you can do. We can't or we shouldn't you know, go around with masks all the time or you know, stop entertaining or stop going to events. Um, you know, this is all about what I call, or economists call the um, intertemporal elasticity of substitution, okay? And that's just a bit of jargon for 
look, when you know the vaccines are coming, then it's smart to wait because you can hold off, you know, for a little while, I'll do less entertaining. I'll go to fewer movies. I won't go to the restaurants just to wait for the vaccines. But once the vaccines are available, there's really nothing else coming, right? I mean, this is it. <laughs> um, and so you don't want to live the rest of your life uh, like that. You have to go back to normal. And I think going back to normal is going to be actually quite difficult for a lot of people and a lot of countries, especially countries like uh, uh, countries that did well in the early stages of the pandemic. Like to say that we're just going to have to get used to in Australia, uh, some people getting sick and dying. I don't think they're ready for that. You know, the United States, we've been living with this for a long time. So we're sort of ready uh, for that, but it's going to take Australia some time. Sort of a morbid competitive advantage in policy, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, a few more questions on COVID. If you had to reset the, the regulatory system, both in pandemic and non-pandemic times for medical devices and drugs, how would you do it? How would you incentivize them to not fall into the trap of the asymmetric public opinion that comes about? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you said, I'm a critic of the FDA, but ultimately this is a problem of risk perceptions on the part of the public. Um, as I said, it's an invisible graveyard and it's hard to get the public to see the costs of FDA delay. It's very easy to see when the FDA makes a mistake. It's very difficult to see when the FDA uh, makes a mistake by uh, going too fast. It's much more difficult to see the mistake when the FDA goes too slow. It's, it's clear with COVID. But, you know, what I say is that people you know, with AIDS and heart disease and cancer, um, they've been in, a, in an emergency situation all the time. You know, the emergency has never ended if you have uh, uh, cancer. So we should be thinking about treating uh, cancer and heart disease as emergencies um, and approving drugs more quickly and allowing more experimentation um, and allowing more drugs onto the market. I mean, if you're very sick, then it's actually quite rational to try an experimental drug. And we ought to um, think in those kinds of terms that when you have a disease which is debilitating and perhaps even uh, deadly, then experimentation and innovation are really, they're the risk averse way to go. Uh, you know, you, you have this deadly disease and the drug, the risks of the drug are much, much less. So we ought to allow more experimentation on those grounds. Okay. Uh, speaking of public responses, you you wrote a paper in 2019, which should be a on premature imitation that uh, elites in developing countries try to copy policies from developed countries, but the context doesn't always transform um, very well. Um, there's this, uh, the, if, if you were the UN Secretary General or, or, in the, or, the, or in the World Bank or in the IMF, what would you do to uh, dis in, uh, incentivize this? Or, 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 or how do you talk to elites and convince them that they should step away from these uh, status games of sorts and, and work towards more plausible solutions? Right. So I think the main thing we have to keep in mind is, you know, there's this whole development economics and, you know, RCTs and, you know, all these interventions and, you know, studying these things. 
and it's all great. I'm not against any of it. Um, but the fundamental truth is that the way that people get out of poverty is through economic growth, is when countries get rich. Uh, you know, China has lifted, you know, a billion people uh, out of poverty and they didn't do it with, you know, RCTs and malaria bed nets or, you know, things like that. Uh, they did that with trade and with economic growth. Um, so this is what Adam Smith said, you know, in the, in the Wealth of Nations, uh, all you need for a country to go rich is, you know, a, uh, I forget the exact phrase, but something like, you know, the rule of law, solid government, uh, honesty and you know just let markets go. <laughs> um, yeah, taxes, I think. Yeah, so so yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, low taxes, right? Um, so I think countries should look a developing country rather than looking for advice to the you know from the United States or you know from Great Britain or something like that. They should instead look to what Great Britain and the United States were doing when their GDP per capita was the same as, you know, India's today. So, you know, take India GDP per capita, let's say three, three, three and a half thousand dollars, something like that. Um, now, what was the United States doing uh, when it had a GDP per capita equivalent to the equivalent to India today? Well, they had a much more laissez-faire economy. They had much less regulation. They had much less government. Uh, you know, India right now is trying to do, basically has every single regulation that the United States has plus some, right? I mean, there's, there's no area, whether it comes to, you know, movie regulation or, you know, uh, 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 financial regulation, uh, it doesn't matter. India has all of the same regulations uh, or equivalent ones than the United States does. And yet when the United States was as poor as India, we had much less regulation. So rather than looking to get advice, I think developing countries should look to how, what currently rich countries, what they were doing when they were poor and kind of follow that sort of model and that trajectory. You may have to go in the entire path. There's no jump starting to go from a poor country to a rich country overnight. You got to follow the same path. Um, on that, I, I, I come from Bangalore, which is a very poorly planned city. Uh, it's basically it's urban sprawl, um, lots of traffic. And in general, nobody would, would rate it as a very good city to live in, unless of, unless of course of the network effects. You wrote a paper on Gurgaon, where um, you talked about how it is a private city and, and uh, how private developers built the city. And when compared to other Indian cities, it was much better. Obviously it wasn't perfect, but uh, given the counterfactual of uh, municipal authority doing it, it was much better. What do Indian cities get wrong specifically? What can they do? What can they copy from these sort of private cities to uh, have the, the urban planning better? Right. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things about Gurgaon is uh, that a lot of the services are privatized. So there, there are private police, there's a private fire service. Uh, most of the uh, municipal kind of uh, functions are even traffic control are handled by uh, private firms and private governments. 
And that has allowed Gurgaon to grow very, very uh, quickly um, and attract a lot of uh, firms to uh, come to build in uh, Gurgaon. Now, it's not perfect because the private firms haven't been able to internalize all the externalities. So it's very difficult, you know, to have a, um, to get all the private firms to agree to produce a sewage system for the entire uh, city, for example. So we still have the situation where you have these gleaming office towers and then the sewage is carted away in trucks, you know, sometimes to be dumped uh, somewhere, right? Um, so there is, I think, room for larger private cities. Um, and I think there is also room for government as well uh, when you do have these uh, major externalities. So one thing, and this sort of contradicts uh, what I just said earlier, but you know, uh, I contain multitudes, so uh, let's just do it. Uh, one area where I think governments could usefully uh, actually uh, regulate is in controlling pollution. So we're learning that air pollution in particular is especially bad. And it's so bad that, especially in India, India is now pretty much the most polluted country uh, in, in the world, I'm sorry to say, uh, you know, North India especially. Um, but pollution is so bad that there's actually an opportunity to increase uh, wealth and health at the same time. So we used to think that, well, rich countries can afford to have low pollution because they're willing to make that trade-off to have lower wealth in order to get more health. But poor countries, you know, they want to get rich first. And so uh, they're willing to accept more pollution uh, as a way of getting uh, rich because they're so poor. Uh, and that is turning out not to be true. It's turning out more to be the case that actually pollution uh, reduces people's IQ, it reduces their productivity, it makes it more difficult to produce goods and services so much that actually you can increase your wealth and your health by reducing pollution. One thing I noticed among, among these and, and other arguments you've made about COVID is that you call yourself a libertarian, but you take positions libertarians don't usually take. For example, among the, the more extreme ones took the idea that, you know, COVID was no big deal, even up to like June 2020, when they sort of like forgot what they said. What errors of thinking do you think libertarians make the most as compared to other political philosophies? Yeah, it's been very disappointing to me to see some of the libertarians uh, taking these really crazy positions. Um, and I think a lot of it comes from this oppositional mindset that you're against something instead of being for something. So yes, we're against, as libertarians, we're against the state. You know, we, you know, we want to overthrow, <laughs> overthrow the state and have uh, more markets and you know, more freedom and things like that. But you can't, but if you just take that attitude, then it's like the state can do no, no right. Um, but that's actually sometimes, you know, governments get it right. And sometimes um, governments can do useful things. And a pandemic is one of them. And what's amazing to me is that libertarians should actually be leading the charge here because it's private firms backed by government support, but it's private firms, which, and their ingenuity and their uh, incredible hard work, 
which have uh, created the light in the tunnel. I mean, it's Moderna and Pfizer and um, AstraZeneca, which, uh, which have been, uh, done an incredible, incredible job, right? Of uh, delivering life-saving uh, vaccines in record time. And they have done so uh, in part because government reduced regulation and also because government pushed you know, uh, funding. Um, but just because you know government was involved, we shouldn't close our eyes. I mean, this is an incredible uh, a virtue of big business. So, like I'm like three cheers for big business. You know, I want Moderna to be bigger. I want Pfizer to be bigger. I want AstraZeneca to be bigger. This is a great triumph of big business, of profit incentives, of markets, of ingenuity. And so, uh, I'm thrilled. Uh, I, I think I can still keep my libertarian hat here um, because, you know, uh, I'm, I'm thrilled at what business has done to resolve the COVID uh, crisis. Uh, wouldn't, came to me just now, but wouldn't some people have the sort of gel man am, uh, amnesia after, after hearing this? Well, they got this so horribly wrong. What else are libertarians getting wrong that that I'm not thinking of. Besides COVID, where do you disagree with the standard libertarian, um, the, the canon most? Um, let's see. I mean, I guess I wear different hats. Um, so as, you know, as an economist, uh, you know, I believe in externalities and, and public goods. And, you know, I have a textbook and, and with Todd or Cowan and, that, you know, we treat about, you know, pollution is an externality and, uh, vaccines create a positive externality, so you might want to subsidize them. So, um, uh, so I, I guess I, I take economics seriously. Um, but, you, you know, I mean, a large part of it is where we are. Here, here, let, here let me put it this way. Um, some libertarians, they think about the end state. You know, whatever you might think that end state is going to be a very limited night watchman state or a anarcho anarcho capitalist paradise, whatever that state is and say, well, if it's not that, then I'm against it. OK, on the other hand, here's how I think about things. I think about things as a vector. So the question is, are we getting closer to where we want to go? And you might not be perfectly aimed to where you want to go, and, but you can still get closer. Right. You don't, for a vector, you don't have to be, uh, you could be moving in the right direction. You could be moving closer without moving directly to where you want to go necessarily. And we're so far away from, you know, the ideal libertarian paradise that uh, anything that moves us even obliquely in the right direction, I think is a good thing. You call you yourself a consequentialist, then, rather than a sort of like idea, uh, uh, like sort of basing it on first principles. You're right. you're you're sort of like an economist libertarian than a uh, sorry, than an ideological libertarian. Yes and no. So I'm definitely a consequentialist when it comes to public policy. So you know what the government should do. I think the government should be a utilitarian. Um, you know, I also believe in you know, individual rights um, and things like that, um, uh, for sure. And uh, sometimes those things are somewhat difficult to resolve, perhaps. Um, but for the most part, they're very, they, they usually work very well together. So I'm not, um, 
So I'm not that uh, uh, bothered by the fact that, you know, when thinking about public policy, I'm more of a consequentialist um, than thinking about, you know, individual rights all of the time. You know, individual rights, I mean, the, the main issue for individual rights right now is not, uh, you know, pandemic policy, it's, you know, uh, law and order, it's, uh, you know, police policy. Um, you know, there's plenty of things to talk about where you can talk about individual rights. Over the last 50 years, it's not clear if liberalism is, is actually conducive to growth. If you look at the growth miracles of the, the Asian tigers, Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, Taiwan, South Korea and Taiwan grew in their autocracies. Singapore is less de democratic than the rest of the world. And, and, and Hong Kong's been uh, a, a, a semi-dictatorship of, of sorts since the British ruled it. Then you look at China and, 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 and they have been a dictatorship ever since. And the same, the, the US and the UK grew even when they were not as democratic as they are today. Um, does, is it necessary or, or is it even correlated for countries to have more um, political freedoms to experience more economic growth? Yeah, so I do worry about this um, because it used to be the case that essentially every rich country in the world was a liberal democracy. And then people around the world would look to Great Britain, they would look to the United States and they say, oh, we want to be rich. Uh, the rich countries are all liberal democracies, therefore we should be a liberal democracy. Um, but now it's turning out that, as you said, to get rich, you don't actually have to be a liberal democracy. There are some benefits, uh, even on the wealth scale. Maybe, you know, you know there's a paper by Asimoglu saying it's like 30%. But that's really not a lot, you know. That's really, you know, that that's icing on the cake. It's it doesn't really motivate uh, people. Um, so you can get much much richer. Um, you can, you know, as China has done, increase your GDP per capita by a factor of ten, right? And you don't require a liberal democracy. So I worry that we are moving into a uh, period uh, where countries no longer associate uh, liberal democracy with wealth. And if what people really want, and mostly it seems this is the case, is wealth, then we're gonna have a lot of countries which are really pretty wealthy, but which are not liberal democracies. And yeah, I, I, I worry about that, um, what a world is gonna look like. Now, we also used to think that as people got wealthier, they would demand more civil rights. And maybe that's true, um, but it's not as obvious as it once was. China is the major um, counter, uh, is the major objection uh, to that. Uh, you know, the Chinese government has managed to squash kind of civil uh, rights and the public as far as we can tell, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I don't see a big uh, upsurge in the Chinese public uh, demand for democracy. You know, there's some people, but it's pretty small. It's pretty small. People seem pretty happy with just getting wealthier. And with technology, you know, the big brother technologies that we have, maybe that's an equilibrium that we really hadn't thought about. That's sort of not true for Taiwan and South Korea, right? They, they both had massive 
uprising in the 80s and 90s and they and Taiwan had its elections in 96 South Korea had its legit its first legitimate elections around the same time so so mm. so maybe when 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 other countries hit sort of like 30,000 GDP per capita they they should be at least asking more for, uh, for democracy yeah so that's possible too so maybe the uh the height of GDP per capita that you need before you get a demand for civil rights is bigger than we thought, but it's still there. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It, I just think it's worrying that the association between wealth and liberal democracy has sort of uh, it, it broken down. It's not, it, it, it probably, it probably was an accident um, that the countries which got wealthiest first were liberal democracies. Um, there wasn't as much correlation as we thought, uh, but it sure looked like it, you know, simple, cor simple correlation in the data. And now that that has gone away, I think that is quite worrying. Your colleague, Garrett Jones, has written a book called 10% Less Democracy. Um, which parts of the U.S. system do you, do you think would be I mean, obviously, apart from COVID policy, because that, that's the most obvious, uh, best we would perform better if more insulated from um, more regular elections. Um, so, so ten percent by ten percent that less democracy. That's still very much a democracy. So, the way that I put Garrett's uh, kind of views, uh, Garrett might disagree, but I think this is basically correct is that democracy comes in a wide variety of forms, right? Uh, everywhere from direct, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, direct voting on, uh, you know, to representative government. And, you know, in the United States, we elect, you know, sheriffs, a lot of countries, we elect judges. Um, a lot of democratic countries don't elect judges. Um, and it's not obvious that judges should be uh, elected. And I don't think the United States Uh, one would say that, oh, Germany is not a democracy or Australia is not a democracy because they don't elect their judges, right? So there's a lot of room, you know, 10% gives you a lot of room and maybe we shouldn't be electing judges um, as one example. Uh, and maybe we should, you know, there's a lot of ways we could think about redesigning the constitution. Um, you know, the, the Senate, Uh, maybe we should include, this is one of Garrett's ideas, uh, bondholders, uh, people who have a stake in the long-term uh, success of the uh, country. Uh, you know, electing representatives every two years, that just seems too often now, right? Uh, why not let's go to four years or five years, more like the Senate. Maybe even the Senate should be 10 years. You know, give So there's a lot of possibilities. I'm not even saying any one of these possibilities is the right one, but different voting systems, you know, using the board account uh, as another uh, example. And most fundamentally, I think we should be voting less on things. We, too many things are collectivized. Uh, and that's one reason why I think innovation has slowed down. You know, we have just like to build something right now. You have to get the approval of your, uh, in the United States, of your, A homeowners association is just terrible. We've made, you know, building a collective decision. You have to get the approval of the historical association. You know, you got to go through zoning. You got to go through, it, like everybody gets their say. Everybody gets their veto. So I think we've democratized too many things. Um, 
And there's lots of different ways of democratizing uh, and we should explore that space more. Uh, on a more optimistic note uh, uh, of all this, you've been teaching online for maybe nine years now, if my memory serves right. What has surprised you over these nine years about online teaching? Of online teaching, yeah, I've been online for way more than nine yeah. years. <laughs> <laughs> no, I meant to say you, 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 you've you been uh, running M uh, MRU for- Right, MRU, now. yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the, the surprise to me, First of all, I think what has not been surprising is that it works. Uh, and COVID has, you know, accelerated that. You know, a lot of people were forced online, uh, which can result in a degraded uh, product. But to do it online in a quality way, the way MRU does, I think really does work well. And it's kind of a thrill for Tyler and I to have students from all over the world. You know, we have students from Singapore. We have students from India, from South Korea, you know, from Brazil. And that's kind of thrilling uh, for us to uh, to have this influence, uh, if you like, or to uh, be able to improve uh, people's learning all over the world. We're excited about that. The thing which I think has been slower than I thought is getting universities to adopt this. Um, you know, I've been trying to get George Mason to offer a international online class, you know, for nine years, and you know, we haven't quite convinced them yet. Um, and it's not that anyone is against it. It's just that uh, getting through the bureaucracy is just incredibly uh, difficult. So uh, I do think that we will see um, some high quality online universities. We're not there yet. Um, I do think that's going to happen, but it's just taken much longer than, than I thought it would. One problem I found in, in online economics teaching was that um, it's very, very hard to find experimental economics online that is showing supply and demand or, um, or, or, or showing uh, a specialization, which you could do easily in a uh, real life class. Uh, how, how do you think about that problem? Can we fix it? Yeah, I think we're at the very beginnings of online education. So uh, the first things to do are the most straightforward, which is what MRU has done, which is to create uh, videos and then have you know multiple choice questions. Um, you know that's fantastic for reaching a world audience. Uh, you know MRU. You know we have students in uh, India and Pakistan and Egypt and Brazil, all over the world, um, and that's fantastic. This is a great way of creating a mass mass media movement, right? Um, but you're absolutely right. It's more difficult to have a more active learning uh, model. That, however, is really mostly a uh, fact of that, you know, MRU is a nonprofit. Um, one, when we get for-profit companies uh, involved, we'll be able to invest much, much, much more money in producing a super high quality class, including active learning and experimental economics online. So imagine, for example, that uh, you have 100,000 students well, then it definitely makes sense to spend even $10 per student, you know, investing in the infrastructure. So that's a million dollar class. You know, rarely in the world have we spent a million dollars on creating a economics class. But with that kind of uh, funding, you'll be able to do much more. And indeed, if you take um, our class 
uh, at George Mason, our online class at George Mason, which uses the Macmillan platform rather than the MRU platform. You know, Macmillan's is our for-profit uh, company. Then you get all of the bells and whistles. You get the ability to shift curves and move graphs and uh, answer uh, involved problem sets, do calculations, uh, do things involving, you know, looking at FRED data, things like that. So already we're seeing when the for-profit companies get involved, then you can spend much more and you can invest much more in building this infrastructure to create an entire active learning module. Hmm. Um, shifting to a different topic, you have a lot of um, leaders and, 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 and uh, students from many countries. From an economic growth perspective, which, which countries do you think are the most underrated? Which one does public consensus dismiss but will actually do well over the next 10 20 years? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I'm sure you know as, at least as much about this as, as, as me, because uh, you have to be on the ground. Um, I do think that uh, India has got a lot of uh, opportunities. Um, India has a, a young, incredibly young uh, workforce. Um, they have uh, the use of the English language, which I think is a big uh, uh, advantage if you're talking about working online. Um, they have a history of civilizational uh, excellence uh, to draw upon, you know, one of the leading civilizations uh, in the world. And uh, so I, I do think that uh, India really does have a, a remarkable opportunity to explode on uh, the global sphere uh, the way that uh, China has. Uh, India, I think, will take a different model, but is... Uh, really kind of an exciting place. What do you think is the biggest bottleneck to India's growth right now? What's the one thing that they should do to get a higher growth rate? Because you see from 2016 to 2019, it fell from roughly 7% to 4 point something. And then with COVID, it, 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 it crashed even faster. So what's the answer to that? So India has a very top heavy government. Um, very centralized government. Uh, it's, you know, it's a federal state on paper, but the central government has uh, so much power and control. And even going down to the state level, the state governments have got too much power and control over, say, the cities. Uh, so I think India does need a decentralization, um, which is very natural for India. It's a huge country, lots of different languages, uh, lots of different uh, religious and uh, cultures, uh, and uh, there needs to be um, a more decentralized uh, approach to governments, which is not just at the state level, but in fact evolving at least down to the city level. Um, cities need to have much more freedom uh, to tax on their own, uh, to raise public goods for local governments, and uh, also to produce benefits uh, locally. So that would be one thing which I would look at. You're very popular and active on Twitter. What do you get right about it that, that other people don't? Uh, so I'm not sure I, what, what I advise my children, you know, stay off Twitter. Um, you, one thing you just have to definitely be aware of is that, you know, one bad tweet can just destroy your career. So uh, you do have to be very... Uh, thoughtful 
of uh, what you're what you're saying and the fact that this is permanent, uh, the fact that it will go beyond what, what I think a lot of people don't understand is that when you're in a Twitter conversation, it appears to be a private, like a DM, like a chat, right? You're, you're chatting with somebody um, uh, who may be your colleague, who at least has a conventional, has an understanding of the same language, the same jokes, the same in-terms in terms, uh, that you do. That's what it looks like. But what it actually is, is potentially open to the entire world. So you take something which you think is like a direct message, a chat, and you're making it to the entire world who don't understand all the in-terms and who don't understand the jokes and what's ironic and what's not ironic and so forth. And then you broadcast that message to millions of other people who don't understand the context and your message now looks completely different than what you intended to say. So that's what I would uh, warn people of. Just remember at all times that mil millions of people could be reading your tweets. Uh, you know, it just takes, even if you only have 20 followers, uh, you know, a tweet can go viral. So uh, you always want to keep in mind that millions of people could be reading your tweets. How would you change uh, social media, the, the, the incentives of the algorithms to make this less, um, dystopian because what you discover there is true but it's like really, really sad to hear that that you know people are forced to self-censor by the fact that uh, their tweets might be interpreted wrongly uh, how uh, how does one solve that I, I, i'm not sure and i do think that social media has had and is having a tremendous influence on our culture which we don't yet um understand and it is kind of uh, worrying you know, it's amazing the things people worry about um, and the things people don't worry about. Like in the United States, you know, gay marriage. You know, there were people predicting, you know, gay marriage is going to destroy Western civilization and it's going to mean that, you know, marriage is no longer between just a man and a woman and who will want to get married. And, you know, this is all of this stuff, right? You know, it goes against nature, against God, blah, 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 blah. And yet we have gay marriage. It's fine. Who cares? It's fine. It's not a, you know, it's, it's created no big social problems that I'm uh, aware of, and in fact, it solved uh, some social uh, problems. I think it's all been been a very beneficial uh, thing, despite the fact that it was an enormous um, debate. And 20 years ago, even liberal politicians like Obama, you know, could not could not come out and say that they were in favor of gay marriage. Um, and that whole, <laughs> sorry, I wanted to go, you know, just like Ellen, when Ellen came out, that was like a big deal, you know, in my lifetime. Uh, oh, gay character on television, gay person on television. And it's nothing, it's no big deal. Anyway, um, you look at that, which everyone was so worried about. And then you look at social media, which essentially no one was worried about. Okay. Uh, what would be the effect of cell phones? Nobody thought, you know, in advance um, how this might change our media conversation. And yet I think it's changed things tremendously. Uh, cancel culture has come out of social media, right? The fact that just with a second thought, you can uh, attack somebody, right? And something can go viral. And we're just not used to that, right? It's very difficult to go against, you know, 200 people, you know, in your local neighborhood when 
you're having a thousand people or 10,000 or a hundred thousand people attack you. That is like severely debilitating. Um, so social media, I think I don't have a solution. Um, I'm not even entirely sure exactly where the problem is created. Um, but I do think that it is changing things in ways we don't understand and is being very, very influential. Okay, yeah, that, I think that that's my view too. Um, you work at George Mason, which has an unusually high concentration of really smart people. Um, how could it be replicated if, if, like, because money is in the constraint, right? A lot of people have a lot of money, but they don't usually replicate it. Uh, how would someone, if they want to build another GME, how would they do that? It's not a question of how to do it. It's a question of who wants to do it. And it's surprising that not that many people want to do it. Um, like every economics department, the, the, model, the model is like to be a junior Harvard. Well, we need a macro guy. We need a micro guy. You know, we need a development person. And they just try and replicate you know, what Harvard does. And so they become a second-rate Harvard. Uh, GMU you know, in contrast, did not want to be a second-rate Harvard. We just want to be a, you know, first-rate GMU, which is odd uh, that economists don't seem to appreciate the, the, the power and utility of product differentiation. Um, but I think this is true across uh, most departments and most universities. They try to replicate some top department and end up being a second-rate version of that top department instead of specializing and in going in some you know, different direction. Uh, now, you know, why this is the case, it's, you know, the pressures of conformity and so forth, um, I think that's the, the main issue. It's not how to do it. How to do it is pretty easy. It's that we don't have enough people who want to do it. Uh, do, you, do you think that, okay, so why does this happen? Because clearly there's uh, there's probably enough people who see successful institutions say, okay, I want to do that. But nobody thinks of that for academic inst institutions. There are trillion startup founders, but nobody wants to build the next than corporation. Why does that happen? Yeah, like, so let's think about startups. Um, you know, the, the startups uh, do do things differently, right? So startups are exactly the right kind of model. But in order to get that to happen, you know, you have to dangle billions of dollars in front of people, right? You have to say, look, you could get tremendously wealthy if you do something uh, different, okay? Um, so in everything else, in economics departments or in you know university departments, we don't have that thing to dangle in front of them, right? So uh, it's amazing that you have to provide such huge incentives to do things differently. Um, and that, I think, is the lesson from startups, is that it just takes a lot more than you think to get people to break with conformity. Um, there should be a lot more startups but it's just very, very difficult to break from conformity. And uh, you really need these huge incentives. And that's the problem. Um, where should ambitious people go these days? Where should ambitious people go? Not um, necessarily by geography or sector, but anything. Yeah. So I think you really need um, go where other ambitious people are. Uh, 
you know, these things like George Mason is not was not created in isolation. Um, you know, you get a, a bunch of like minded people together. Uh, and that's where these kinds of um, things can happen. You know, the, this is a, uh, you know, you can't say these things nowadays, but this is where, in a sense, you can overdo diversity, right? Like I'm really big on diversity, you know, but you can overdo it because in order to create a, uh, a Venice or in order to create a Florence or a GMU, if I may use that, right? You actually need a bunch of people who are thinking similarly um, in some respects. Um, and so you wanna go where there are other ambitious people. It doesn't really matter the sector, um, but you wanna go where people are willing to do things uh, differently uh, and find some communities and you know, create your own uh, kind of uh, groups who can support diverse thinking. And again, this is the uh, paradox is that to support diverse thinking, you need people around you who think like you do, okay? Because uh, it's very difficult to be diverse on your own, <laughs> to be a non-conformist on your own. Uh, but at George Mason, you know, I can afford to be a non-conformist because I'm surrounded by people like Tyler Cowen and Brian Kaplan and Robin, Han Robin Hanson, Garrett Jones, who are also non-conformists and they support my non-conformity and I support their non-conformity, right? And so you really need a group of non-conformists uh, to be successful. If you were given a billion dollars in, in funding, how do you allocate it? How do you uh, best use your talents to um, sort of increase the, to, to do the maximum good you could? Yeah, so, I mean, just to do the maximum good, I would follow, you know, Give Well and Open Philanthropy and uh, those guys. Um, you, they, they put a lot of work into it and uh, Give Directly, I think, is a good um, uh, charity model. Uh, so I think those things, if I was looking to invest, I guess, in something which uh, was a little bit outside the mainstream, one area where I think we're going to see advancements is actually life extension uh, technology. Uh, you know, some of these rich guys like Peter Thiel, you know, people make fun of them uh, for investing and do, you know, doing these things, you know, having the blood boy right, back on Silicon Valley, uh, things like that. Um, but yet I think what the, what the few billionaires are doing the, who are ahead of the curve is what normal people will be doing in 10 or 20 years. Um, so I think we're on the cusp of making some big improvements in life extension technology. Right now, this is considered, you know, anti-aging research. This is sort of considered a little wacky, um, a little crazy. Uh, uh, but I think it's time that we stop thinking about disease and instead think more about living longer, about anti-aging, not go at it disease by disease but instead think about like, why do we age? How do we stop aging? I think actually now is the time to make some big improvements in that sector. Uh, which, which part of, 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 of economics is the most uh, reliable? Because people complain that, you know, macro is not that reliable. We have so many theories and they change every 30 years. Which, which, far, which 
uh, part of be, beyond the the basic uh, econ one one things, which subfield would you bet substantial amounts of money on being correct? Well, there's lots of correct things, you know, in experimental economics, for example. Um, the problem is, is that the the you know the the, the smaller your microscope, the more correct you can be. Um, so, you know, the a lot of results from experimental economics are replicable. Um, they have not had the same problems as in social psychology, experimental psychology. Uh, these kind of findings replicate over and over again. So there's plenty of uh, truth there. Um, but I and then I do think that you know you said don't say econ 101, but I'm going to say econ 101. Uh, incentives matter. Uh, property rights matter, you know, economic growth is important, uh, you know, law and order, you know, uh, honest government, all these kind of things do do matter. We actually know more about the, the big things than we do about specific theories. We know more about long run growth than we do about specific, you know, macro uh, theories. But uh, all of those things that Adam Smith talked about, they continue to hold true today. Uh, but surely the field has improved since 1776, right? I mean, it's almost, almost every economist I speak to says, yeah, those are the most reliable things, uh, reliable pieces of um, theory we have. Isn't there something else? Auction theory, um, rent controls, something else? Well, so uh, finance is a good one. Uh, yeah, I do agree that... Um, you know, options pricing models, that was a huge uh, advance. Um, so I agree with that. Of course, empirical techniques have improved a tremendous amount, right? And just the combination of big data and economic theory have enabled us to, to create new markets. I think that is perhaps the biggest change over the last uh, 20, 20, 30 years, which is like think about what Uber is, right? Uh, Uber is the creation of a supply and demand model within a firm. So they have used market, it's a market mechanism. Um, the allocation of kidneys or students to school, um, the type of things that uh, uh, Al Roth uh, pioneered. Um, so we are beginning to create uh, markets um, and that's pretty uh, new. Um, think about prediction markets. This is an area where my colleague, uh, Robin Hansen, uh, is a pioneer. Uh, the creation of prediction markets uh, is kind of a, a fantastic example of what Hayek talked about. How you take dispersed and decentralized knowledge and you bring it all together in a market price. And what we found is that prediction markets are much better predictors of the future, whether it's elections or other questions, you know, than polls or uh, other uh, information aggregation devices uh, that we have. So it's this ability, I think, now to design a market, which is really new. And um, that's quite exciting. Who was the most underrated uh, economist before 90, before who, who did most of their work before 2000? Underrated economist before 2000. Let's see. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I'd, I'd have to think about that one some more. <laughs> I thought you'd go for Ronald Coase because 
his insights are definitely there is institutional economics, but it's not it's not obviously it's not within the popular conception of property property rights and such but but even when you look at the way people approach normal uh, problems even uh, economists at times they go and they they forget the basic ideas that that people can can map their externalities themselves and you know what matters the most is stable property rights yeah i mean coast is is great um, but he did win a nobel prize so it's hard to say he's underrated but maybe Maybe he's still underrated relative to what he should be rated. <laughs> Thomas uh, Thomas Schelling is another one who is underrated. I mean, he did win a Nobel Prize. But actually, if you look at what Schelling called game theory and what people call game theory today, they're totally different. Um, so mm-hmm. Schelling game theory is a, is a completely different beast um, than what people do today under that same rubric. So maybe Tom Schelling is uh, underrated. In the... You got your PhD in 1994, which is like, by my estimate, 20, so 20, late 20 years away. Uh, what do you tell to somebody who wanted to do, eco, to, to do economics for the next 20, 30 years? How should their approach be different? Yeah, so uh, my son is in exactly this situation. <laughs> um, and I do think the standards have gotten... Uh, higher and it's gotten harder actually. Um, he is doing a uh, economics, a uh, a dual degree in economics and math, and that is kind of the sort of thing that you need. And now it's becoming more and more common to do a pre-doc, you know, to go work for the Fed for a few years or to be a research assistant for a professor. Um, and I'm not really in favor of that. I just think it it just is stretching out the uh, PhD and the learning time uh, too much. Um, and I'm not even in favor of, you know, requiring everyone to have a math degree, uh, an undergrad degree, but yet that is becoming the standard. I think about uh, Joshua Angrist. Joshua Angrist, you know, who just won the Nobel Prize. If you look at his career, it's kind of crazy. Um, you know, he did a lot of drugs in high school, and this is not like a secret. He writes about this, you know, in some of his papers. You know, he says, when yeah, I was in high school, on, I was... on cohort effects, where he mentioned that, I think. Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. So he talks about it. And then, um, you know, he went off and he did a stint in the Israeli uh, military. Um, and, and, you know, uh, he still uh, wasn't on the, on the track, as it were. Um, he only got into economics quite late uh, in life, and then later on he wins a Nobel Prize. Um, I think we're making it more difficult for these uh, weird people um, to get into uh, economics. And at the same time, we're supposed to be, you know, increasing diversity and getting women and minorities in. And yet, by raising the standards um, in these ways, by making it narrowing the path, I shouldn't say raising the standards, it's really we're narrowing the path to become a a PhD economist. And I think narrowing that path is uh, in general a negative thing. Okay, Uh, I've loved talking to you and it's been a great time. So thanks a lot for coming. Um, And I'm sure the listeners will love this because you've been dropping insight after insight in, uh, in, in this podcast. Well, happy to be here and happy to talk with you. And hope to visit uh, Singapore sometime. Yep, if you if you do, 
uh, give me a call. I'll, I'll show you around the underrated places. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs>